This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by content editor Andrew Dykes and our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed. And many folks might still be off amid the Easter slash April uh, break, but the news wheel has indeed kept on turning. And anyone who's been tuning into the six o'clock news will have seen the pictures of the horrific events unfolding in Sudan. And our Africa editor, Ed, has been taking a look at that as well as the, the implications for energy infrastructure. Ed? Yeah, so as, as you say, Alistair, uh, some really, really uh, worrying sights out of, uh, out, of, out of Sudan over the last few days. So the uh, fighting, fighting broke out on uh, April the 15th, um, and we've seen these, these two forces, the, uh, the uh, RSF, who are essentially a sort of a descendant of the Janjaweed militia, uh, going head to head with the uh, with the sort of the official uh, Sudanese armed forces, so the RSF, uh, as, as you know, and the the, the Janjaweed militia um, were part of the uh, sort of paramilitary group who t- tried to uh, impose the government's will in Darfur, where obviously uh, you know I'm sure the, uh, the the name will ring bells. Uh, years of uh, years of fighting in the sort of starting around the sort of the 2000s. That the um, following the split of of Sudan and South Sudan, the RSF. Um, became more and more part of the the state apparatus and in fact uh helps drive uh, Omar al-Bashir the uh, the uh, ICC wanted uh former president of Sudan uh from power in 2019 they they, they the RSF and the and the army had a sort of a, a sort of a, an agreement a sort of a power sharing deal that kind of really kind of came to the fore in 2021 when they uh, when they rose up and seized power and there was a sort of a slightly awkward, strange way in which these two uh, armed groups, tr- both obviously trying to secure their own power bases, trying to maybe sort of find some way through uh, to, to sort of, you know, formalise their relationship and, and, and sort of governance in Sudan. And, and, and also sort of uh, both in, in various degrees of talks with international forces, the UN other and, and the Quad, uh, sort of a group of interested uh, countries in Sudan trying to bring about some sort of transition to, power, to, to peace and, uh, and, and, and democratic rule. It looked like things were improving in December. There was a framework agreement uh, signed uh, by the RSF and the uh, SAF, the, the Sudanese Armed Forces, and, and, and various other groups, which seemed to try and sort of set out a transition to democratic uh, rule. There was, a, there, was a, there was a plan for uh, elections in two years. All, those, all the right noises were sort of being made. But in the last couple of months, things have sort of really fallen apart, um, largely because of these two groups really failing to be able to decide how to share power right the the RSF was supposed to be integrated into the into the army um and this was a, there was a feeling that you know this would have seen uh, Hameti, the, uh, the 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 leader of the RSF really sort of lose that sort of power base and he's i mean there there obviously he he controls a sort of group of armed men and he's used that to uh create what seems to be something of a of a fortune he's involved in in gold mining in in sort of uh, various companies commercial interests and i i suppose you know there was there was this possibly a concern from the RSF that they were going to lose power that Hermeti was going to lose his 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 access to uh, to 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 wealth 
and it, it's there was this sort of uh, friction, this ten- tension sort of underlying uh, these uh, relationships in the last couple of months. It's it's a bit unclear what what sparked the uh, the, the the fighting on April the fifteenth. It seems possibly the RSF became concerned that the Sudanese armed forces were planning to move against them. There's sort of a preemptive strike. So uh, things broke out on April the 15th um, and it looks pretty bad. I mean, I think, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's unclear quite how many people have been killed. I've seen sort of numbers in the sort of two to three hundreds. But we've I've seen some really uh, shocking footage of... Uh, low-flying helicopters carrying out strikes in Khartoum. We've seen uh, satellite imagery of uh, a number of uh, buildings targeted, destroyed. Um, so it, it it looks it looks it looks pretty worrying for the for on the in in terms of just sort of sheer people. There've been talks about you know people have been trying to create a ceasefire. Uh, various calls from from the US, from the UK, from the UAE, all of whom have uh, have have sort of interests in in the country, trying to bring about some sort of resolution, even just a truce. So far, that seems to be not not be working. Obviously, that's the problem with uh, with 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 news as it develops. But it, it, it looks at the moment like uh, the political resolution needed to bring those those two sides together to stop them from fighting has not yet been possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen some of the coverage uh, around Khartoum as well. I mean, horrific, really. Uh, one, one of the kind of the stray bullets, a student in university killed on campus and they, they had to bury that person on campus because they, they literally couldn't get the body off site. It's just kind of unthinkable. Uh, one of the points that I kind of saw was a woman saying, you know, we're running out of drinking water at this point in our homes. Um, so, in terms of that that infrastructure piece, Ed, I mean, what what are the implications for? Uh, I I gather quite a lot of the production from Sudan is, is exported, but what are what are the implications for uh, the energy side uh, as a result of this conflict? Absolutely. So, as yet, uh, the uh, oil flows seem to be continuing. I mean, I think it's obviously sort of slightly unclear as to the extent to which loadings will be able to be carried out in a country that seems to be in a sort of state of civil war um obviously there will be insurance implications for uh for, for, for tankers uh trying to trying to carry that out and so sudan is a sort of a relatively uh minor producer it has something like sixty thousand barrels per day of production but it's also uh south sudan exports crude through sudan so obviously because um when south sudan started producing oil it was uh it was it was still controlled at that point by sudan so those Two big pipelines run north to uh, a point near Port Sudan. So uh, South Sudan has about 120,000 barrels per day. So in April, uh, uh, an analysis from from OLX suggested production exports, sorry, would be about 100,000 barrels per day in April, rising to about 135,000 perhaps in May. Obviously, uh, up until April the 15th was the last point at which data was uh, available. Tanker loadings were still going ahead. And, you know, more are expected. But obviously, there are challenges around quite how you go ahead around, you know, uh, exporting crude from at that point. The, it, it seems like the, uh, the Sudanese armed forces are in control of, of, of Port Sudan um, and that. So that should uh, provide some degree of, of, of security in it. It, it, it seems pretty clear that uh, the Sudanese armed forces have made it clear that, you know, that they are taking steps to protect sort of that infrastructure. 
But obviously, as, as, as we know, I mean, pipelines, they're very long. Should the RSF try and, you know, uh, strike pipelines, as they may, in a sort of an act of desperation, obviously, you know, what the what the rationale behind that may, is not clear. But obviously, there is a concern that um, that pipeline, those pipelines are vulnerable and, uh, and, and, and clearly at risk, which would put you know additional strain on on on, on sort of uh, oil prices around the world um so south sudanese crude tends to go to asia it's sort of uh, it's, it's sort of heavier more acidic so asian malaysia china those 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 sort of refineries in that in that area are uh, tailored to, uh, to to take those crudes so as yet, uh, there's 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 no impact, uh, but there are clearly concerns around the future, and I suppose also around. So you know, I think you know we were talking a couple of weeks ago about uh, Savannah Energy, which was uh, which was facing some problems in Chad, and is uh, is has sort of turned its attention to a deal in South Sudan where it's trying to buy out Petronas's uh, assets. Possibly around sort of forty fifty thousand barrels per day of production. So it's a really significant deal for Savannah. But obviously, the uh, the prospects of trying to do a deal when you know exports may seem unclear all becomes a bit of a question mark. Yeah, really uh, horrific to see what's unfolding there, uh, Ed. But I think I think for now we will we will leave that there. I'm sure we'll have more on Sudan as that unfolds and check out more on our website. Uh, but that's it for that section. Next up, it's the North Sea blacklist with Andrew Dykes. The Scott Wind Project and its nearly 28 gigawatts of offshore wind is going to bring huge opportunities to Scotland. At the same time, it needs to be developed within the wider shift towards a sustainable low-carbon future. In this second episode of Series 2 of Gigawaters, brought to you by Sustainable Growth Voice and Energy Voice Out Loud, in paid partnership with Orsted, we're going to look at skills and jobs, and how Scott Wind must be developed within the context of a just transition as well as how it can be used to help transform the lives and futures of young people. I'm joined by Ben Sykes, Head of Environment, Consenting and External Affairs at Orsted, and Claire Kanakides, Head of Network Support at National Charity Onside, and a trustee on the board of the new Youth Zone in Grimsby, known as Horizon, which is being supported by Orsted. This podcast is coming soon. Okay, Andrew, you are not uh, James Spader, uh, and you're not hosting a TV show or or acting in one. Um, not required back, though. NRB's blacklisting, it's a serious allegation in the industry. Why is this issue rearing its head again? Thanks, Alistair. Yeah, there, there's really two parts to this discussion. And the first is a kind of much wider piece on whistleblowing that uh, I've been working on for really a couple of months. Um, but uh, it's something that's been raised in the past specifically to do with, with Just Transition. There was a report from uh, the campaign group platform a few months ago and it set out uh, 10 demands for a just transition for workers but one of them was uh, a better framework around whistleblowing. So I had a discussion with uh, Kathleen, a legal officer at the whistleblowing charity Protect who sort of set a little bit more on the, the background around this. So the UK has a whistleblowing framework uh, it's the currently the Public Interest Disclosure Act or PETA 1998 uh, that makes it unlawful to subject a worker to negative treatment or to dismiss them because they've raised a whistleblowing concern. So that might be around safety. Uh, it could be around kind of operational stuff. Uh, lots of reasons why you might uh, blow whistles, but that means that you can't be uh, detrimentally treated because of it. Unfortunately, the nature of offshore employment means that 
those protections generally do not apply to offshore workers and to seafarers. So that's uh, partly because the whistleblowing law doesn't apply beyond the territorial waters, so 12 miles out from shore, as opposed to the uh, exclusive economic zone, which is 200 nautical miles. It also doesn't include uh, self-employed or off-payroll workers, uh, who, as we know, like kind of constitute the majority of offshore workers. So uh, secondly, there's also no legal or regulatory requirements for companies to have whistleblowing policies. Um, so even if you did have the protections and you, you weren't worried about discrimination afterwards, there's no kind of set framework as to how they would go about reporting and looking after your concerns. And even so, the business of then proving that you've had any discrimination afterwards can, can be pretty difficult. So Protect uh, and others are campaigning for a new bill that would kind of enshrine a lot more protections. It would secure legal aid support for whistleblowing cases, and it would also introduce uh, mandatory standards for the, the procedural stuff. Um, a lot of this in the offshore kind of uh, context focuses specifically on this practice of uh, not required back or NRB. So that's when uh, the offshore installation managers, the OIMs, can require the removal of any person uh, where that's considered necessary. It kind of, uh, it's been likened to, to a ship's captain. You have ultimate control and it could be for legitimate reasons. Maybe you've, uh, conduct hasn't been great or you've kind of committed some very important safety breach. But it's a bit of a black box in terms of your rights as, as an offshore worker. You don't have a lot of recourse. And again, because of these employment arrangements, there aren't a lot of uh, methods you could do to challenge that decision. So unions have said that once uh, someone is NRB'd from an installation, they have effectively been blacklisted. And it might remove them not just from that installation, but also from, you know, maybe all the assets that are operated by that contractor, maybe even all of them from the North Sea if they have a particularly bad reputation. So uh, there, there are very uh, limited challenges to, to that, uh, that process. And uh, unions say that, you know, it can be used indiscriminately basically against anyone who raises any kind of objections, whether they're legitimate or otherwise. Uh, again, Platform spoke a lot about anecdotal reports that, uh, you know, people who were sent on training courses for the day and, and found out they should have been given kind of pay or uh, per diems for that, you know, who, who questioned that were, uh, were then <laughs> NRB'd from their installations. That's obviously purely anecdotal, um, but it is a concern for workers. So Oil & Gas UK, as, as was then, issued guidelines more than 10 years ago uh, to kind of try and uh, stamp out the practice. But the guidelines are, again, the unions say, not really strong enough to prevent it entirely. So the second part to this is, with this discussion around protections, uh, we spoke to RMT, uh, whose uh, General Secretary Mick Lynch uh, responded. He said that they believe this process, the NRB, is still being practiced by contractors and duty holders offshore. Um, obviously, that raises big concerns because we're about to see a huge wave of industrial action hit the North Sea in the coming months. I think we're looking at 1,350 Unite members uh, walking out uh, next week and you know more to follow over the coming months. It's a huge, uh, they've called it a tsunami of action that they've said is unprecedented. Um, so Mr. Lynch was saying they will be keeping a really close eye on the uh, behavior of contractors after and you know during these uh, strikes for any kind of subsequent NRBs or any form of persecution or discrimination against uh, offshore workers who are in trade unions. He said it's going to be a key test of industrial relations over the remainder of the decade. Um, and, and kind of wider looking, obviously RMT has uh, mentioned a lot recently about seafarers' rights to do with uh, minimum wage, things like that. That's again come up in discussions around just transition. He said they hadn't seen uh, any instances of NRB in renewables, but again maintained that any form of it 
at at all in offshore energy should end. He said otherwise there would be a real risk that uh, practices that continue on kind of oil and gas assets could then threaten the transition for those workers as they look to maybe find work in in the wider renewable sector. Um, the point is though it's obviously been a really long running issue. You know, I looked back. I think Alistair, you were writing about this in 2018. These guidelines were put out in, in 2009. I've been around for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, it it seems to be this kind of. Uh, yeah, long-running issue dogging the sector, and and I think workers do seem legitimately and genuinely kind of worried about the prospect of of the implications of uh, these NRBs. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I remember. Well, when you wrote your latest piece, it kind of jogged my memory about it, and I think you did reference it. So, uh, yeah, in twenty eighteen, there was a couple of stories about this, and one of which was it was on. I'm sure it was Repsol Sinopex. Claymore platform. This guy got in touch anonymously, of course, but sent me a a, a picture of what appeared to be and was verified to be a, a list of names on the Claymore platform that appeared to be kind of a NRB list. Um, and Repsol Scientific took that very seriously, but uh, it did appear to be uh, what, what, what it claimed to be seemed to be accurate. Um, there was no suggestion, really, uh, for reasons you've set out, and Andy, uh, that Repsol Sinopec did anything illegal. But, um, you know, and some of the people who were on that list had since kind of gone back to the platform. But it raised some pretty serious cultural concerns about the company and the practices. You know, what's going on that made them think it's okay to have a list of names of people who didn't want back? You know, um, I must say it hasn't seem to be such a big concern this practice in recent years i suspect that's because of other issues affecting the industry around redundancies and downturns and the like um but yeah i mean that that story did very very well because i think people are very conscious of this issue and uh yeah with with the sheer amount of industrial unrest that's going on right now it seems to make sense that people would have these kinds of concerns again i suppose I suppose my question would be, and, and and you made this point, Andy, that much of the evidence that's been made or given so far is anecdotal. I'm, I'm, I think it'd be difficult to find evidence um, beyond that. But do we think that NRBing is going on widely, or could it be that this is maybe a, a degree of a warning shot from RMT to just say, look, industrial action going on, lots of it, don't even think about blacklisting or NRBing our workers because we'll challenge it. I think that's accurate. Yeah, I think it, it's really difficult to, to pin down. Like you say, unless you come across an actual you know, photocopy or a physical list, this is again part of um, my, my discussion with Protect was and, until you find that kind of evidence, it's, it's really hard to verify how widespread, you know, even uh, if you if you had a, pure, a completely legitimate concern, you would need to kind of produce that evidence to have any kind of recourse, I think. Um, so I think with this this action, this kind of almost uh, 1,500 people, you know, they will be watching it very closely. I, I would suspect that given that scrutiny, I would hope it would not be uh, the, the issue that uh, Mr. Lynch kind of is worried about it becoming. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the difficulty with these anecdotal cases is that they obviously resonate. You know, reading some of the testimonials in this in this platform report, they, did, they didn't seem... Uh, ingenuine you know they seem kind of very uh concerned about this as a as a, as a practice and 
I, I can see why. Can I just say, like, it feels it, it feels absolutely ridiculous that the, uh, the 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 whistleblowing law protections would only extend to territorial waters rather than the EEZ. Wait, wait until you hear the rules about marine accident investigations. Sorry. Yeah, but I it, it, well, sure, sure. I just feel like like what an oversight. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's it's hard to prove with sort of I suppose kind of you know can, you know off off payroll contractors whatever, and obviously there are challenges. But just, you know, not even extending that to, you know, beyond the sort of the, the, the 12 miles or whatever it is. I just feel like what a what a glaring oversight. I mean, at the risk of, uh, of putting on my, my tinfoil hat, I think <laughs> uh, I think the oversight is is deliberate in that sense. Right. I think there's a bit of a kind of uh, culture of omission around that. Right. Because I think, you know, it, it doesn't apply to, therefore, like a lot of fishing vessels. It doesn't apply to kind of these offshore construction vessels. And all of that kind of creates this gray area that, you know, has definitely been exploited in a way that's favorable to a lot of, of companies in recent years. You know, there were cases around uh, foreign workers being paid in less than five pounds an hour for working seven seven days a week for, you know, months at a time and in some offshore wind construction a few years back. Um, you know, I think that has has benefited a lot of parties in this. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's it's difficult to, to justify how that would yeah come about. Ed. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, it, that that's a, a massive issue that uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna have a whole other segment, I think. But though, I mean, that that kind of reared its head recently with Valaris One Two One. It's a different uh, issue in terms of employment stuff. But the who 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 handles a marine accident investigation uh, beyond the twelve mile line is is really interesting. Another kind of grey area, as Andy mentions, in terms of the legislation, um, which uh, which seems to be rearing its head more and more in different topics, but. Uh, for now, okay, well, thanks, Andy, for that uh, explanation. And next up, it's environmental concerns and the Brent oil field after this. UK export finance can help your business grow overseas. Last year, we helped UK exporters access £7.4 billion of support by providing government-backed finance and insurance. We can help you win export contracts with attractive finance terms. Got orders overseas? Fulfil them with a working capital loan. Exporting to a challenging market? Make sure you get paired with the right insurance. To get the exporter's edge, search UK Export Finance or call us on 0800 538 5111. Okay, so the latest on the Shell Brent oil field could represent a fairly significant change in how Shell and the UK regulator will approach what to do with the thousands of tonnes of oil sediment contents that are stuck within these huge legs of this oil field? Should Shell be allowed to just leave it in the sea to degrade over time or remove it? Um, So just to recap, for those unfamiliar with the issue, the Brent oil field, obviously iconic, one of the giant fields in the North Seas being decommissioned. And there is a question over how Shell's handling what's inside these Eiffel Tower-sized legs of the Brent, Bravo, Charlie and and Delta. The issue doesn't relate to the concrete legs themselves, to be clear, but what's inside them, the contents inside them. And Shell wants to leave the legs and the contents in place because, on balance, they see that as the most environmentally sound, achievable solution based on the decom techniques that are available today. And that position is supported by the UK government. On the flip side of that, you have other EU countries and many environmental groups saying, hang on, you can't just leave this crap in the sea. What they're saying is that as the concrete legs degrade over time, these substances, this 11,000 tonnes of oil sediment, will spill out into the sea and the environment, causing, well, we don't know what, and that's kind of the point in terms of the impact. So the UK government for about four years now 
uh, has been minded to grant uh, Shell uh, or to allow Shell to go ahead with their plans. But to do so, they need what's called a derogation to a clause in the OSPAR convention. OSPAR is this pan-European convention which is designed to protect the marine environment. Um, And as far as oil and gas goes, it basically requires full removal of structures from the sea unless a derogation is granted for exceptional circumstances. So, uh, as I say, the UK and many countries that are party to OSPAR, like Germany, have been at a bit of loggerheads here. The UK has previously been minded to allow a full derogation, let Shell carry out its plans, which brings us to uh, a special offshore industry committee meeting of OSPAR in Berlin last month. And the UK is party to this, uh, among with uh, several other countries, uh, and uh, a a representation for the EU as a whole. And that group made a series of agreements, and most importantly, that the contents of the legs are not part of derogation categories, which in theory means it cannot be derogated from the OSPAR convention. They agreed that the contents are to be classed as hazardous wastes, and that leaving these in place would be considered dumping under the OSPAR convention. The ultimate legal decision, as far as I understand it, and we've written about this before with legal experts, is the UK government. They will decide on what will happen. But the UK government, the UK regulator, Opred, told this meeting these contents would only be left in place if it was not safe to remove. The two options that will be looked at are removal, once the technology is available, or in situ remediation, which kind of means treating it with chemicals to get rid of the stuff. Opponents have been arguing for a long time that removal is possible. And what was kind of interesting at the meeting is that Greenpeace came out with what we understand to be a study that has not been shown previously to OSPAR from 2009, commissioned by Shell, showing that removal of these contents while keeping the legs in place uh, is technically feasible. Clearly, removing the actual legs, these are humongous structures and it would just be so dangerous um, and, and, and difficult to do. But the argument is that you could leave these in place while also removing the contents first and you'd have what is effectively left clean concrete, if you like. Um, So I guess what this ultimately comes down to is that commentators consider this to effectively be a U-turn in the UK's position. They had been minded to give full derogation, allow Shell to to do what they want. Now they're saying, we're not going to put this in the derogation categories, and we will only leave it in place if it's absolutely not safe to do so, but we're looking at the technology. Um, and, And there are... I guess this means that Shell and others will need to look at tech for removal for these cell contents, and there are other platforms out there that are similar to Brent that are facing these same kind of issues. So this may set a precedent, if you like, for other big, older platforms in the North Sea. So that's it. And and as one person put it, it is a big deal for the industry, if quite a convoluted one, I'll concede. So what does it mean? Do do you, do you think that they're actually going to go ahead and, uh, you know, like hoover out the contents? Is, uh, is, 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 is that, is, it seems more likely now. Yeah, I, well, we'll see what happens. I think there's, there's been a whole, whole sort of uh, theories as to what might actually take place. Will, will uh, the UK now kind of carry out this every couple of years review into the technology and that, um, or, you know, find some way to incentivize development of the technology. Um, Because if there isn't anything to incentivize it properly, then this issue is just going to roll on and on. Um, So it's hard to say. I think what is fair to say is that the OSPAR countries who are opposed to it are, they're pretty fed up, I think, with the fact that this issue has been rolling on. As I say, this has been about four years that 
the UK has been trying to get them to agree to this um, derogation request. And, and now they've kind of made this change in position, which they could have done in the first place, if you like, um, if they'd listened to what others have been arguing. So it's very difficult to say what, what will happen next. But I mean, yeah, in theory, what they should be doing is, I don't know if hoovering's the right way or, or whatever else, but yeah, some sort of tech to get rid of what's uh, in place and then leave the 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 kind of the shell if you like of the legs uh, in place and people you know might remember that we had in I think 2019 and 2020 we had these very um, gripping uh, pictures from Greenpeace who went out to the the field and uh, stuck up this massive signs and climbed legs they clean up your mess shell and all the rest of it. it. The problem is, it is such a it is such a convoluted <laughs> issue, and it's taken me a long time to get my head around it. In that, it's not the actual legs themselves that need to be removed; it's the contents therein. And there'll be time to name the other platforms that are involved, but certainly the one that we've we've talked about most, besides from this, is the the Dunlin field, um, which is uh, Fairfield Energy, and uh, that has certainly been discussed at Ospar as well. I believe there is a meeting next week uh, about that field specifically or will include references to that field specifically so the Dunland derogation has been kind of they've been trying to do exactly basically the same thing as what Shell's been trying to do um, but uh, Ospar don't like that either so what what we could have I suppose is uh, a precedent set once they finally make a decision uh, for not just Brent, Dunland but there's some other fields as well in the UK I guess what's unclear right now is a timeline, uh, a timeline in terms of when this will actually get decided upon. We had thought it was going to be last year, for example, and now we're we're no closer. I think uh, recently uh, Ospar set out a kind of deadline of 2024 for some guidance in terms of what to actually do with all this. Um, so that would suggest next year. Um, but yeah, who's to say? It's it's quite a it's quite a tricky one, and I suppose. In fairness to them, it's I suppose this has never really been tackled before in this way, and these 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 fields and these platforms were not really designed with removal in mind. So that's where we are. I mean, picking up on that point, right? Like, you know, why are they why are these companies building these constructions? You know, which obviously a lot of lot of lot of thinking goes into, a lot of planning, a lot of designing that they don't know how to take apart and solve at the end of the process. I think you're you've got big 1970s brain there, Ed. It's <laughs> <laughs> somebody else's problem. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a problem for somebody 50 years from now. I think uh, might be yeah. might be the answer to that question. I th- I think. Um, I'm always minded of, and this is a, a very tenuous analogy, but kind of it's the asbestos thing. If you if you want to do work on your house or something, and you find asbestos, right, you know that you have to deal with it, and it's a serious issue that has to be dealt with. But there's this idea that it's like if it's undisturbed, right, you can kind of leave it and you can put it off, and it's like maybe one day we'll have a better technology and it won't cost so much and whatever else. But like fundamentally, there comes a point at the end of the road, right, where you're going to have to deal with it. It, it cannot stay there forever. And I kind of think that's a really similar situation here. It's like w- when the technology is available, it's like, well, we need, we're going to need to get on with that, that challenge, right? We we need to kind of put put a green light on that and make sure we're looking at it. We need to get on with it. I think I think maybe what maybe would be worth pointing out is that from from what I understand, I'm not an engineer. I do not know, but from what I understand is that. Technically, it would be, it could be possible, exceptionally difficult, exceptionally costly, exceptionally probably dangerous, but feasible in some way to actually refloat these legs and get and, and remove them. But it would just be such a difficult task that, as Shell kind of says, on balance, safer to leave it in the sea. 
But yeah, ultimately, the argument of environmental campaigners, other OSPAR countries, no, you can leave these legs in the sea while also safely removing the contents, uh, hoovering out, if, as you say, Ed. So, um, but yeah, I think maybe there has been an issue of uh, taking a blind eye to it, maybe back in the day. Um, I think most most platforms we've got now are designed with removal in mind, of course, but uh, this is one of the earlier ones. Um, and these, certainly this, this particular platform, these particular platforms were... Uh, probably not designed with uh, removal uh, of these huge legs in in mind. Um, but if that's incorrect, please do uh, write in. I'd be interested in hearing um, if anybody who's involved in the construction, what you have to say about uh, the, the gravity-based storage cells and uh, the sludge and that within. Um, but okay, so I think that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Andrew and to Ed for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.